Well, let me invite you back into Psalm 33 this week. We were there last week, but we're in our series, God is Great. And another great truth about God we're going to find and focus on here in Psalm 33. So far in this series, we've seen a number of things, including this, that God is awesome in His holiness. We sang about that again here just a moment ago. God also is awesome in His great love. We've seen also that God is omniscient, knowing all things. He's also omnipresent, being fully present everywhere. We also saw last time that God is omnipotent, meaning that God is unlimited in His great power. And so today we return to Psalm 33, and we're going to learn this truth about God, that God is sovereign. Now, the first time I ever heard that phrase, God is sovereign, I was a freshman in college. But I did not hear it from a professor or from a theologian. I heard it from Joy. We just started dating, and she used that statement, God is sovereign. Joy had been a Christian longer than I had been, and I had some catching up to do in my knowledge of spiritual things. I was, a, I was a believer. I loved Jesus with all my heart, but my knowledge wasn't all there yet. And so she used that phrase, God is sovereign. And you know, you kind of have that knowing look like, mm-hmm. I didn't know what it meant. I knew it sounded right. And so I went back to the dorm room, looked it up. And it's a great truth. I said, well, let's talk about it together, what it is. So diving back into the word, with that as our topic, God is sovereign, Psalm 33, picking up in verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Here we go. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So yes, God is unlimited in His power, but see with me today, He is also unlimited in His authority. When we speak of God's sovereignty, meaning he rules over his universe and all that takes place in it because of God's unlimited power, because of God's unlimited knowledge, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by mere men, nor by nations, nor by demons or any circumstance. Again, look at verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. Now notice the contrast. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. So notice this, God can intervene and frustrate, nullify the plans even of nations. How about that for God's sovereign authority over his earth? But conversely, nobody can frustrate the plans of God. There's nothing that could happen where God would say, well, I didn't see that coming, and that really throws my whole plans for my universe really into disarray. No one can frustrate God's plan. So this is a clear statement of God's greatness in His sovereignty. God is transcendent. He is above us. He's above all circumstances. So understand this. God has a plan for the universe, including you, and nothing can thwart His plans. This is a very comforting truth here. So here's our pathway today to take on this topic together. So we're going to talk, first of all, about the definitions of sovereignty Secondly, we're going to look at the declarations of sovereignty from God's Word, then some demonstrations of God's sovereignty from God's Word, and then we're going to apply this to our own lives. So first of all, some definitions of sovereignty. One source says this, this term, sovereignty, expresses the biblical teaching concerning the absolute, irresistible, infinite, and unconditional exercise 
of God's self-will over every area of his creation. There is nothing which lies outside the realm of God's sovereignty, including evil, the, even the evil acts of men. Though God does not approve these evil acts, he permits, governs, and uses them for his own purposes and glory. Another writer said it this way, God's sovereignty is the biblical teaching that all things remain under God's rule and nothing happens either without either his direction or permission. God works in all things for the good of his children. These all things include evil and suffering. God doesn't commit moral evil, but he can use any evil for good purposes. And then A.W. Tozer, whom I've quoted a great deal in this series, Tozer said it this way, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. He continues this way. God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases always, everywhere, forever. To be thus free means that he also must possess universal authority. Those are some grand, great definitions of sovereignty. Now let's look at how the Bible then declares this sovereignty. And of course, we won't look at all the verses that talk about this. You'll find it throughout the scriptures that God rules over his creation. But how about this sampling here? Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Lamentations 3, 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1, this is a great one. It says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Or Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered? Ephesians 1, 11, this is also stunning. Ephesians 1, 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, catch this, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then famously, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So these great declarations of God's sovereignty tell us several things about God. First of all, it tells us this, that God did not create the world and then step back from it. God has not taken a hands-off approach to the world once he created it. Neither does the Bible teach that God created the world and only occasionally steps back in. It's not a from time to time God will do a little something in the universe, but mainly he's out, but sometimes he's in. No, the Bible explains it this way, that God is always working. He's always working out his purposes for his glory and for the good of his children in the world. In this world, God maintains full authority over everything, even all the things that happen on the earth. So Job had it right in Job 42 too, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's will, God's purposes could never be 
frustrated because our God is sovereign. So this truth about God blows our minds, doesn't it? I mean, if you, I don't know how you rank them. <laughs> the fact that he knows everything blows my mind. He has all power. But his sovereignty will blow your mind. And it also won't it cause you to scratch your head a little bit. But everything on the earth is not good right now. And so how, how is God sovereign when there are things like COVID-19 and racial strife and rioting and abortion still in the land and personal tragedies, but yet God's word declares God is sovereign over all. And even when we may not understand how a particular circumstance could possibly fit within his good purposes, nevertheless, we come back, we see the scripture declares he is sovereign and we trust him in this. In fact, to make this point, let's look at some demonstrations of God's sovereignty. And there are many places in the Bible that we could go, but just three this morning, we're going to look at a demonstration of God's sovereignty in the life of Joseph. Do you know the life of Joseph? Not New Testament Joseph, but Old Testament Joseph in the book of Genesis. We read about him. He was a favored son of his father, Jacob. And in jealousy, his brothers sold him into slavery. So you thought your siblings were rough. His siblings were jealous of him. And when they had an opportunity, they thought about killing him. But instead of that, let's, let's be merciful. Let's just have him sold to these traders who are coming through. And we'll tell dad that he was killed by animals. That was the brothers that Joseph had. And so an evil was done to Joseph. God permitted it to happen. Things got worse. When he then was sold again, he's in Egypt. He's in the house of one called Potiphar. He's doing pretty well. God's favor is on him. But the wife of Potiphar is making passes at Joseph almost daily. And so Joseph, though being a righteous man, saying, I, I won't do that. I could not do such a thing to God or to this man who's put me in charge of his household. I won't do that. And so he's righteous, doing the right things. But then on a particular day, the wife of Potiphar grabs him by his cloak and wants him. And get, once again, righteous, won't have that. And so he leaves his cloak and he flees. And she lies about him. She says, oh, that Hebrew that you brought in here, he was, he was trying to take advantage of me. But I screamed and I have his coat here. She framed him. She lied about him. A terrible injustice done to Joseph on top of what he was already experienced. And he finds himself now in an Egyptian jail. What an evil injustice done to him. Eventually, Joseph's in jail and two of Pharaoh's servants are now in jail with him. And they had dreams and God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And so he was able to accurately tell them what their dreams meant. And the things came to pass. One was executed as Joseph had to sadly tell him. One was restored to his position with Pharaoh. But even then, Joseph was forgotten there. There he was, remaining in prison. Another injustice done to him. But, but at the right time, after years of setbacks and injustice... Joseph is called before Pharaoh. He's finally remembered this ability that God had given him to interpret dreams. He's called before Pharaoh. He's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, this troubling dream, that there's going to be a terrible famine in the land. And the message also from God to Pharaoh through this dream, you better get ready. You better start stockpiling grain and other things because this famine's going to be severe. And so Pharaoh, so impressed, understanding the rightness of God, he, he exalts Joseph to second over all of Egypt. It's amazing to see injustice, evil done to him, and yet here is the plan of God, that Joseph at the right time would be one who would protect the chosen people of God to keep them from starvation during this time. Many lives would be saved. And you say, well, maybe you're just reading that in there. 
No, Joseph got the point. This is why it's recorded in the scriptures for us. So, so when Joseph's brothers came for food, listen to how this went down. This is Genesis 45, verses 3 and following. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's understanding the sovereignty of God. Verse 6 of Genesis 45. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there, there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He said it again in Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am, am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Behold, the amazing sovereignty of God, even taking the evil acts of others to accomplish his divine purposes. Well, it wasn't just Joseph where we see it. How about another demonstration in the life of Job? Job, do you know the story of Job? It's a great story. Here Job was a godly man, a wealthy man, but Satan the accuser claimed that the only reason that Job serves you, God, is because you bless him and you protect him. And so God allowed a unique test in the life of Job. So God allowed, with some limitations, Satan to bring disruption to his life. And the first test was this, that Job lost all of his 10 grown children. Can you imagine how painful and horrific that would be? And many of his possessions. Then there was a follow-up test where Job lost his health, painful boils all over his body. But here's what we get from the story of Job, is that God is the one who's sovereign. God is the one who allowed this. Satan could not touch Job unless God permitted it. Now, Job didn't know this. We get to read the story and we get to see God's sovereign hand. Job had friends telling him, well, God can't be happy with you if all this suffering's happening to you. But we're reading along. We know, no, God was very pleased with Job. He's the one who said, have you considered my servant Job? And yet God allowed this testing. Listen, it's in the scriptures for a number of reasons, this book of Job, recording the life of Job. But it lets us know that when we suffer, it is not always an indication that God's disciplining us that God can be very pleased with us, and yet we might suffer. That God can have a purpose even in our pains. That God is sovereign over all of our lives, and we should trust Him, even when we don't understand why God is allowing certain things in our lives. And in the story of Job, we see that he was faithful. He remained faithful under the sovereign hand of God, even as he did not understand it. Maybe you know this, Job's wife, not quite a faithful woman. Her advice to her husband who is suffering is this, Hey, Job, curse God and die. That was her approach, but Job would have none of that. This is Job 2, verses 9 and following. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. It was later when he's questioning God, why, why, why? God then questions Job back, and then Job just said this, Job 42, 2, that we've already read. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Job understood. He grew to understand the sovereignty of God. So understand this. Even Satan is ultimately limited in his involvement in your life. That's why we don't need to be fearful of the evil one. We do take up the armor of God. We fight spiritual battles. We understand we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we don't walk in fear. Our sovereign, mighty God fights for us, and there are limits on what the evil one can do. And even the things that the evil one can do, God can use it for our good. Didn't Paul experience that? We just recently come out of our 2 Corinthians study, and we saw there in chapter 12 these words. Paul said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Remember that? A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And so Paul, understanding the sovereignty of God, can understand, hey, this is a messenger of Satan that God is using for a glorious purpose in my life to keep me humble, to keep me from exalting myself. So God is sovereign even over the activity of Satan. Remember, God spoke to Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. We're just talking about the sovereignty of God. And we've considered some definitions. We looked at a number of the declarations. We're just now looking at some demonstrations of it. And how about now in the life of Jesus? Oh, we know about Jesus' life. That his whole life was fulfilling prophecies that God had given so that we would know that his coming was following a very clear plan, the purpose of God. Even his birthplace was foretold centuries in advance by Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem. Even his virgin birth was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Even the nature of his death, a sacrificial death told to us centuries before by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus would speak during his ministry of things that must take place. He was following a plan. Jesus would repeatedly tell people that the scriptures are being fulfilled in me. So it's very clear that God was orchestrating every move of every day of the life of Jesus, including the day of his death on the cross. And I love this. So we're talking about his sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and the apostles understood God ruling over all of these circumstances. So this is a prayer that the apostles prayed in Acts 4. This is Acts 4, 27. Listen to this. It's a prayer, and they say to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So the cross was not God's plan falling apart. The cross was God's plan. The cross was not God having to come up with plan B and improvise when the people turned against Jesus. It's not like this. When Jesus was crucified, God the Father was not saying, wow, I didn't see that coming. I mean, the plan was that Jesus would come, everybody would love him and adore him, and everybody would hug, and it would all go great. We just established the kingdom forever right there in the first coming. It's not in the plan of God. Again, hear, hear the word of God, how the apostles prayed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, catch this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This was the plan of God, and nothing could thwart his plan, not even evil men and women. God could even use evil men and women to accomplish his purpose. So listen, what do you do in light of this sovereignty of God that we're seeing? You praise him. He is great. There's nobody like him. He's sovereign by his great power and by his great wisdom. He can even work through unbelieving evil men and women to accomplish his purpose. 
purpose. Think of it. Your salvation was purchased by God orchestrating events using evil people to accomplish exactly what he wanted to happen at the cross. And we might have a question here, but what about the evil people? Are they, are they off the hook because God used them? No, they're not off the hook. Be sure of this. People who sin are responsible for their sin. The Bible is very clear about human responsibility at the same time. So this would be for another day. But listen, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they are compatible. And they are so in the mind of God. So we, want, we won't think that because God can use evil, then we just give our own evil a pass because God's going to use it. God did not make you do evil. God will use it. So again, what do we do with this? So now let's spend some moments applying this to ourselves. So right now, you and I know we live on a broken earth. Because of the fall of the first couple in the garden, we understand that paradise was indeed lost. But we do know this, that the plan of God is for paradise to be restored. We know that after Jesus comes, there will be a time when God will eventually set up the new heaven and the new earth, and there will be no more problems like this. God is working his plan toward that end. But until then, until perfection is restored, we know this, we have confidence in God that we can walk with him. So let's go back to our first verse here, our focal verse, Psalm 33, verse 10 again. Hear how God orchestrates the things even now in our world. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart from generation to generation. So what do we do with this truth? First of all, trust God. Trust God. Trust God not in your circumstances. Sometimes in our circumstances, it can appear that all is lost. But that's never true when there is a sovereign God moving things forward to fulfill his will and his purposes. Even in a world full of evil and natural disasters and pandemics, our God reigns. And he's working out his eternal plans for his glory and for the good of his children. Even when it doesn't make sense to you and me, we cling to God trusting in him that he is sovereign. Remember David wrote here that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me and your rod and your staff, they come for me. Even when I don't understand, I can trust the Lord. So trust the Lord, not your circumstances. Trust in God, even in your suffering. And wouldn't we acknowledge that it's in our time of pain and suffering when we're most tempted to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt that he even has a plan. When, when you get a bad diagnosis, when you lose a job, when you experience injustice, maybe a bad coach, maybe a bad boss, maybe some bad law that's put into place, and we think, how, how could that possibly be something that God could use for good? And yet God remains sovereignly on his throne. Have we not learned that nothing can thwart the plans of God? And he's moving things forward to his conclusion. New heaven, new earth coming. Aren't you glad? But sometimes people lose the little bit of faith that maybe they had in the midst of adversity. I read this, and this is interesting, that sometimes Americans, Americans will lose their faith because of things happening to people in other continents. So there are Americans who will say, well, I don't know that I can believe, believe in a God who would allow suffering like that in Africa. So I love the compassion. I love the empathy that they care about what's happening to people in Africa. That's very good. But to lose your faith because of suffering in Africa, that's an odd thing to do. Or some say this, they're Americans and they hear about some difficulties in Asia. I don't know that I can believe in a God 
who would let that happen in Asia. Here's what's striking about that. There are strong believers in Africa who are going through the sufferings, and they're saying, God is good. I'm trusting in God. There are strong believers in Asia, loving and worshiping. They're the ones going through it, but then there will be people here going, I don't, I don't know that I can believe in God like that. Listen, we trust in God even in our sufferings. Listen, the Bible's not naive about suffering. You haven't read the Bible if you think the Bible's a book that never deals with suffering. It's from the fall of man to the very end. There's suffering, there's persecution, there's martyrdom, there are illnesses, there are all kinds of things happening there. There are imprisonments and all kinds of things in the Bible. The Bible's not naive, naive or silent on that. We understand why suffering's on the earth right now. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve and the sin, the earth is cursed. And we live here and we know this isn't the final outcome. And God uses suffering for his purposes. Real quickly, just a couple other verses. Here, Paul spoke of it this way. He had this understanding, I'm going to suffer in this life during this short stay on the earth, especially as I serve the Lord. Acts 20, 22 and following. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. That was Paul's expectation as he went from city to city with the gospel. Remember 2 Timothy 3.12? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible is not unclear on suffering. Or how about 1 Peter 4.19? Therefore, those also who suffer, catch it, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So in our sufferings, in our pain, what do we do? We trust we trust in the sovereign God who's working all this out. And then finally, trust in God and surrender your life and your plans to him. One of the great benefits of spending this time talking about the sovereignty of God is the acknowledgement that we're not sovereign. It's kind of comical when you and I think that we are sovereign. Let me, let, me, let me illustrate to you that you're not sovereign over your life. You did not choose your birth. You did not choose the family you were born into. You didn't choose your height, you didn't choose your IQ, and many other factors you had no control over. You cannot dictate your future. Now, it's, a good, it's good to have a plan and to have goals and, and, and to try to work those things out, but how many of you have ever noticed, that's not how I planned that? <laughs> you might be living in a city you never planned to live in. You're like, this wasn't my plan. And so here's, here's humility here. God is sovereign. You and I are not sovereign. This changes some of the advice we give to our children if we're wise. The world says you can do anything you set your mind to. I like the sentiment, work hard, make goals. Sometimes you'd be surprised uh, what you can accomplish. I, I get that. But you cannot accomplish anything you set your mind to. Just two silly examples. If I set my mind to play in the NBA, you say, Pastor, you're wasting your time. I'd say, uh-uh, my mother told me. I can do anything I set my mind to. And you say, that's futile. Even, even the really good athletes, aren't, most of them aren't making it there. Or how about president of the United States? By the way, I, I would love it if somebody in our church would one day become president of the United States. So don't let me throw cold water on something God's calling you to do. I'm just saying everybody who maybe has that as their ambition, just because they set their mind to it, aren't going to become president. No matter how much you want it. Here, here's the deal. Whatever God has willed will happen. Not everything that you and I will 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 happen. We're supposed to have humility and faith in him. It's a total different way of approaching life. And James talked about it. 
James 4.13 and following. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. This is humbling. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. We're talking about what do, we, what do we do in light of the sovereignty of God? Listen, humble yourself. Submit yourself to his leadership, his purpose, his plan. And then here, this comfort for the believer, back to Romans 8.28. It's famous for a reason. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so let me ask you this. Do you love God? Are you one who has responded to his call to salvation? You've said, yes, I turn from my sins. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm, I'm in his hands. Are you one of those? Because if you're one of those, you're a child of God if you've trusted in Jesus. And he says, the promise you, he will work all things together for good, for your good, for his glory, if you're among those who are his children. We've talked about this before, but it can be like a recipe. You think, how, how could God take this bad thing and use it for good? Sometimes when you're putting a recipe together, you've got sweet things that taste good all by themselves. But sometimes in that same recipe, there's some things that you'd never want to eat by themselves. But you put them together, pretty amazing. You even put it under some heat. And even more amazing still, that I would have never guessed you put those ingredients together, something good happens. And sometimes in our lives, we can look back, oftentimes not while we're in it, but sometimes looking back, okay. I can see some good from that painful thing that I never want to experience again, but something good I can see that is there. Some people use the analogy of a tapestry, so some ornate fabric. If you look on the back side of it, it looks like a tangle of knots and strings going everywhere. Seems to be no pattern, but if you turn it around and step back, you go, oh, there was a design all along. And sometimes in the midst of our suffering and our difficulties, our setbacks, our heartbreaks, we go, I, I see no plan here. But I hope these scriptures have reminded you our Father has a plan. He's working out His will. He will use even these negative things along with the very good things He's allowing to accomplish His purposes in our life. But, but the move, trust Him. Trust Jesus for salvation and then continue to trust Him. Let me lead us in prayer. God, help us now to take these words to heart. God, as we see James here, calls us to a radically different orientation to life, a, a radically different view of the future. God, we understand you hold the future. And we humble ourselves right now in your presence because you are almighty, all-knowing, full of love. God, you have a purpose and a plan that no one can thwart. And so we just reaffirm our confidence in you. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through right now stressful times, painful times. Lord, I pray that you'll, you'll enable them by your spirit to trust you and hold on. God, make us patient as we wait for your good plan to unfold in its fullness. Lord, remind us that we are just a vapor here that vanishes and, and, and soon enough, but not soon enough in some ways, we'll be with you in glory with never another pain or tear or sorrow. Lord, help us to be like those we read about in the scriptures, like Joseph, like Job, oh, like your son Jesus, being faithful even in adversity. Lord, I do pray that you'll save souls today. I pray for it here in this 930 service. Lord, together as a 930 service, we pray for those at 11 and those who will be watching online. We pray for their salvation as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.